I want to invite you to open your Bibles up to Psalm chapter 1, very first psalm in the book of Psalms. If you have uh, one of our uh, black Bibles from either side of the room, you can turn to page 472. If you have your own Bible, you can just flop it open to the middle and you'll probably land in the Psalms and then you can go from there uh, to chapter 1 and the the beginning of that. Okay, we're going to spend the next eight weeks in the Psalms together and then we're going to finish up, uh, it's going to culminate on Easter Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together, right? Now, do we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus only on one Sunday out of the year? No, we don't, do we? right? Because as believers in Christ, his resurrection is not a once a year holiday for us. It is an all day, every day reality of our lives. We love and we serve the risen Savior King as those who've been resurrected spiritually now. We've been raised with Christ because we've died in Christ, uh, being dead to our sins and transgressions and now made alive in him, right? And this Christ is going to come back and he's going to resurrect us physically. Our bodies are going to get up out of the ground. And what was corruptible will be made incorruptible and what was mortal will be made immortal, right? And Jesus will complete his kingdom of heaven on earth and he will reign with his people forever. We're united to him by faith in him. And now he lives eternally in us through his Holy Spirit. These are amazing realities in and of themselves. Each one of these could be a a sermon. We could talk about these forever, and we should talk about these all the time, right? Sometimes, though, we lose sight of these glorious gospel realities because the not-so-glorious realities of our lives overwhelm our minds and trouble our souls. Anybody come in here this morning just totally happy, not worried about anything? Maybe. Praise God if you are. Chances are we're all thinking about something else, though. Something we need help with, something we're troubled by. And so we need to be reminded by this resurrection hope that we have in Christ. Easter Sunday uh, uh, serves as one of those many reminders that we need. Sometimes we just need to focus in and be, and be reminded of this incredible miracle of the, of the resurrection and how that works itself out into our lives every single day. So in a sense, then, we can also think of the book of Psalms as a book of many gospel reminders. The individual Psalms are referred to collectively as the Psalter, okay? And the Psalter is divided then into five books. You'll see these headings if you follow the chapters in your Bible, book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. Um, there, there's, a, there's, you know, 20 to 30 Psalms in each one sort of thing. You can find those headings in your, in your Bible, and then there's a reason for that. Many of the individual psalms were set to music. They were sung by the temple choir, but the Psalter as a whole is more than just an Old Testament hymn book, okay? Like we just talked about in Colossians uh, 3, the New Testament church was singing these psalms. They were using them to teach and admonish one another in the ways of Christ, Individually, these psalms are written by a number of different authors like Moses and King David, King David's son Solomon, and some of the Levite uh, worship leaders, the music leaders who were in charge of of that temple worship. About a third of them were written by uh, anonymous authors, but no one authored more of these 150 psalms that we have than King David. Nobody authored more of them. He wrote almost half of the psalms that we read here. 
73 of them, I believe. Now, historically, these psalms were written over the span of about a 1,000 years. Moses was the first one, right? Like, uh, uh, or probably the earliest one. And many of them were written while King David or another Judean king sat on the throne of Israel and ruled over God's people. But sometime after the Babylonian exile, do you know the history of Israel where they split into two kingdoms after Solomon and then the the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom of Israel was eventually overcome by Assyria, which Assyria is where Nineveh was, right? When we talked about Jonah the, the past few weeks. Assyria wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, and then uh, just not, uh, a couple hundred years later, about the, the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is, where the, 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 the throne of Israel is, King David's throne, they were wiped out by the Babylonians, taken into exile. And in this period of exile, uh, the throne, while the throne remained empty, these psalms were then gathered up and arranged into the order that we see them in our Bibles today. They're not arranged chronologically. Otherwise, Moses' psalm would be first. They're arranged theologically, okay? They're not teaching us history lessons, although there are history lessons in them. They're teaching us gospel lessons. This is important because the arrangement of the Psalter is heavily influenced by uh, the one who wrote most of them, David, right? And, and by the covenant promise that, that God made to King David to put one of his descendants on the throne forever. In First Chronicles chapter 17, 11 through 14, the Lord told David, when your time comes to be with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who is one of your own sons and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me. He's talking about the temple. And I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will not remove my faithful love from him as I removed it from the one who was before you. He's talking about Saul. I will appoint him over my house and my kingdom forever and his throne will be established forever. That's the promise. It's a beautiful promise, isn't it? Here's how David responded to the Lord in prayer. He said, you made your people, your own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house be confirmed forever and do as you have promised. Let your name be confirmed and magnified forever in the saying, the Lord of armies, the God of Israel is God over Israel. David is saying these things before Assyria came, before Babylon came, before the kingdom even split. Lord, confirm this promise. He says, may the house of your servant David be established before you since you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. Your servant has found courage to pray in your presence. Lord, you indeed are God and you have promised this good thing to your servant. So now, you have been pleased to bless your servant's house that it may continue before you forever. For you, Lord, have blessed it, and it is blessed forever. When these psalms were gathered up and arranged together into the Psalter that we now have in our Bibles, this good thing that God had promised to David still had yet to be confirmed forever. 
The temple was laid in ruins in Jerusalem. The people of God were scattered in exile throughout the Babylonian Empire. And the throne of David, the throne that was supposed to be filled forever, sat empty. But in spite of all that, this hope that David expressed in his prayer still remained that God would be faithful to fulfill that promise. And the way these psalms are arranged then reflects that hope, like a symphony uh, with, with different movements that, that, that uh, take the heart of the listener in all kinds of ways, in all directions, up and down. The psalms take the reader on a heart-engaging journey from trouble to triumph, from lament to praise, And this journey is expressed from the perspective of one central human figure in all of the Psalms, this one called the anointed one, okay? Now, the Hebrew word for that is Messiah. The the Greek translation of that is the Christ. Sound familiar? Jesus Christ, right? He is the anointed one, so much so that we just make that his last name, (laughs) right? And yet that's not a last name. That's his title. Jesus, the anointed one. He's the one that that God promised ultimately who would fulfill this throne forever and sit sit on David's throne forever. Every king from David that sat on the throne, including King David, was a Messiah. They were God's anointed one to rule over God's people in their generation. But what happened? Each one of them failed to rule God's people perfectly, didn't they? Each one of them sinned in some way, and each one of them then died, because what does sin lead to? Death. And they were unable to remain on the throne forever. You see, they were all a Messiah, but none of them was the Messiah. None of them was the Christ, the anointed one. But even as each Messiah died, again, hope in God's messianic promise remained alive. One biblical scholar and author says this about the Psalms. He says, while the sins of the Davidic line called the kingdom into question, the editors of the Psalter stressed from beginning to end that God would deliver Israel's king and those associated with him and that he would preserve both his king and his kingdom forever. This author continues, in the Psalms, we get a unique taste of the inner passions and prayers of the anointed king. We hear the anguish of his laments, the joys of his thanksgivings, and the pleasures of his praise. And through these various expressions, we find help for our own journey through tribulation unto triumph. Insofar as we identify ourselves with this anointed king, his prayers then become our prayers and his songs our songs. Psalms are designed to move our hearts. These are poems. This is poetry. This is a a new kind of genre, something that we we haven't been in. We just came out of satirical irony, and before that, we were were in uh, uh, symbolism in, in the book of Revelation. The Psalms paint pictures for us, but they do so to stir our hearts to move our hearts to prayer and worship that's centered on God and his anointed one, this Messiah, the Christ. And the Psalms ultimately point us then to Jesus who is that Messiah and that Christ. The Psalms draw us into 
the sorrows and the joys that Jesus experienced on his way to fulfilling God's promise and securing the throne forever. And then they give voice to our own sorrows and our own joys that we experience as we wait for our forever king to complete his forever kingdom. Psalms 1 and 2 served then as this preface of sorts to the entire Psalter together, and they give us this portrait of this anointed one, this one that God promised to put on the throne forever. We looked at Psalm 2 about a year ago during our Advent series as we went through uh, the Gospel of John, and we saw this anointed one whom God called his son, and the nations raged against him, and God just laughed on the throne, right? He says, I have installed my Messiah on my mountain." We know that's pointing to Jesus. We've, we've looked at Psalm 2 together. We have not looked at Psalm 1 together, so that's going to be our focus this morning. But I want to encourage you this week to go back and read those together and pay attention to the very first verse in Psalm 1 and the very last verse in Psalm 2. We'll talk about those a little bit today. But they're bookends that show us that these things go together and they give us the, the picture of this anointed king, not only as the king who lives forever on the throne, but as the ideal human being. The Psalms then show us, and what we'll see today, especially in Psalm 1, is that there are only two ways to live. There are only two ways to live, and, and when we're done with Psalm 1, it's going to leave each of us to answer this question, which way am I living? Which way am I living? Now, that was a longer introduction, but I think that we need that mindset as we go into this. Otherwise, we, we're going to read the Psalms incorrectly we're going to pull from them things that, that they're not necessarily meant to, to show us. Like today is, is going to teach us how to live, but it's going to teach us something even greater than that. How to live in someone. The blessed one, the holy one, the righteous one. So uh, I want to pray. Uh, according to the Psalms, here's a great prayer to pray. Psalm 119, verse 18. Lord, open my eyes so that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. Twenty-three. No, nope, sorry, thirty-three. Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. Help me stay on the path of your commands, for I take pleasure in it turn my heart. There it is. That's what Psalms are meant to do. Turn our hearts. Lord, turn our hearts to your decrees and not dishonest prophet. Jesus, make those things true for us this morning. Amen. I'm blessed. We hear that phrase a lot, right? Uh, we might even say it often ourselves, but what does it actually mean then for us to be blessed well, I did a quick Google search because, you know, Google. Um, and it's going to reveal, if you go out there and you Google search, that many people think they're blessed when they gain some kind of fame, when their team advances to the playoffs, when they find a great sale on clothes, when their Starbucks drink is delicious, when they have the latest iPhone, when they're healthy, wealthy, happy. Hashtag blessed, Right? one of the most used hashtags in the history of uh, social media. 
See, the culture that we live in teaches us things. The culture that we live in teaches us to associate blessing with the enjoyment of things that come into our lives, but the Bible teaches us something different. The Bible teaches us that blessing is not so much associated with the circumstances that we welcome in, but the person that we welcome in. The Bible associates blessings with the enjoyment, not of things, but of someone. So here's what we're going to see in Psalm 1. Only those who delight in the blessed one are truly the blessed ones. Only those who delight in the blessed one are truly the blessed ones. I want to read the whole thing, six verses long, and then, we'll, and then we'll work our way back through it. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers? Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He's like the tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but leads, but the way of the wicked, the way of the wicked leads to ruin. The way of the wicked leads to ruin. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He's like the tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Now, that word happy in verse one there can also be translated as blessed. Blessed is the one, okay? We can think of it that way. This conveys this lasting satisfaction of experiencing God's favor in your life. The blessings of God lead our hearts to be happy in God. And at first glance, these verses that we just read, these first three verses, they may seem like uh, prescriptive. Like if you live this way, then you'll be truly happy. You'll be blessed. But these verses, if we pay attention a little bit closer, they're not so much prescriptive as they are descriptive. They're telling us about someone. They're describing someone who actually does live this way. This is the ideal godly man. Verse one tells us that this man is surrounded by wicked and sinful people, but he's not influenced by them. He doesn't listen to their advice. He doesn't do what they do. He doesn't say what they say. Chapter two tells us a little bit more about these wicked and sinful people. It says that they're the kings of the earth who take their stand and the rulers who conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one, his Messiah, his Christ. And they hate God and they live for themselves. They don't want God's king to be king forever. Why? Because they want to be king forever. That's what sin makes us do. It makes us want to be king forever. But this blessed man in verse one doesn't conspire together with them. Verse 1 tells us what he doesn't do. Verse 2 tells us what he does do. This happy man, this blessed man, delights in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. 
In the book of Deuteronomy, God predicted that the Israelites would want to appoint a king over to, uh, to rule over themselves after they entered into the promised land, and they would do that. They said, well, make us like the nations around us. They all have kings. We want one too. God knew that that was coming. Why? Because he's God, right? And so preemptively, he said, hey, here's what the ideal king needs to look like. If you're going to do this, this is who you need to appoint over you. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20 says, when he, this king, is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It's to remain with him, and he's to read from it all the days of his life, a.k.a. day and night. Meditate on it, right? So that he may learn for, uh, to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from this command to the right or to the left, and he and his sons will continue reigning for many years in Israel. Then after Moses died, Joshua was preparing to lead the Israelites into the promised land to take possession of it, and the Lord spoke to Joshua and said this in Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Above all, Joshua, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from the right or from it to the right or to the left so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it for then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. This blessed man in Psalm 1 delights in the Lord's instruction. He's happy in it. He enjoys it and he meditates on it day and night without fail. And verse 3 then tells us what he is like as a result. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams. As he continually draws nourishment from the Lord's instruction, he bears fruit and has abundant life. He prospers in whatever he does. It's a picture of life in the Garden of Eden before the sinful rebellion of Adam and Eve. Everything bore fruit in the Garden. Work wasn't work. Or maybe we should say work was work, and then the sin made it toil. The fall made it toil. Everything you do from now on, Adam, will be with struggle. You won't prosper in everything you do. Now, I don't think it took very long for us to realize or recognize that there's only one person that perfectly fits this description of the blessed one in these three verses, and it's not me, and it's not you. Let's just review for a moment. Verse one, shall we? Have you ever taken any bad advice from someone? Have you ever gotten in with the wrong crowd? Ever been peer pressured into saying or doing something that you know that you shouldn't be saying or doing? If you said yes to any one of those, at some point in your life, you have walked in the advice of the wicked. You've stood in the pathway of sinners. You've sat in the company of mockers which, by the way, I can answer yes to all of those. How about verse 2? Do you, do you delight in the word of God nonstop? Do you read your Bible every day this past week? How about the past month? 
about this past year? You ever missed a day in your life? Is God's word always on your mind? Do you meditate on it without fail day and night? Do you memorize it, store it up in your heart? Now, we would love to answer yes to that question, but the reality is that we meditate day and night on a lot of other things, don't we? We meditate day and night on sports scores and player stats, on TikTok shorts and Instagram reels. We meditate day and night on political polls and news headlines, on stock markets and retirement plans. We meditate day and night on whether or not we're going to have a paycheck next week, whether or not we're done with winter, right? whether or not that thing that that person said to us had some hidden meaning behind it. There's a lot of stuff on our minds that is not God's word, isn't there? How about verse three? Do you prosper at whatever you do? You ever failed at anything? You see, we don't fit this description of the blessed one in these verses And we're not meant to anymore. We were before the fall, but the sin took that away from us. Our sin took that away from us. But there is someone who fits this description, isn't there? The Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus. Let's review his life together, shall we? Remember when we went through the Gospel of John? At the end of John chapter 2, John said that many people believed in Jesus when they saw the signs that he was doing, but then immediately after that, we realized together that, those, that their belief wasn't actually real belief. Why? Because Jesus, uh, or John says this about Jesus in John 2, 24 and 25. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. You see, Jesus didn't walk in the advice of the wicked. He didn't stand in the way, pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Did he sit with sinners? Absolutely. Did he live like them? No, he didn't. He loved them and he came to die for them. But he didn't come to be one of them in that sense. He came to make sinners like himself. He was sinless. His delight was in the Father's instruction and he meditated on it day and night. Each time he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, you know what Jesus said in response? He quoted the instruction of the Lord. Quoted God's word in response, including Deuteronomy 8, 3, that says man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He delighted in this word delighted in the Lord's instruction. 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, he was sustained by this word. It was food and drink to him. When he gave the Sermon on the Mount, he told the crowds that he hadn't come to abolish the law, the instruction. He had come to fulfill it. In John chapter four, when his disciples told him to eat something, he told them that his food was to do the will of the one who sent him and to finish his work. In John chapter 12, Jesus said that he did not come to speak on his own, but he speaks just as the father told him to speak. And because he delighted in his father's instruction, Jesus then prospered in whatever he did. In Mark chapter seven, Jesus healed a man who was deaf and mute. And when the people found out about it, do you know what they said? 
They were extremely astonished, Mark says, and they, and they said, look, he does everything well. They might as well have been quoting Psalm 1 right there. Everything he does prospers. He even heals the deaf and the mute. Every time the Pharisees or scribes tried to trap Jesus in his words, did they ever get him? No. His answer ended up trapping them in theirs, right? Not even death could win over Jesus. He prospered through even suffering and death. Jesus is the ideal king that God described in Deuteronomy 17. He's the greater Joshua who's bringing God's people into a greater promised land. He's the source of rich, abundant life like the Garden of Eden. He is the tree. He is the stream. He's the water, the bread. Everything that gives life is Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. We saw this in John and in John's gospel. Jesus is not just the blessed one here in this psalm. He is the blessing. He is the blessing. Because Jesus prospers at whatever he does. Listen, that means that his death on the cross was absolutely enough to purchase complete forgiveness for our sin and reconcile us to God fully and finally. He not only sits on the throne forever, but Hebrews tells us, the book of Hebrews tells us that he holds the priesthood forever. Hebrews 7.25 says, therefore, because he holds this priesthood forever, he's able to save completely. That's glorious words right there. To save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. He always prospers at whatever he does. We need a king like that. We need a priest like that. We need a Messiah like that. Jesus came into this world and he was like us in every way except that he was without sin. But then what did he do? He took our sin upon himself. He became the curse for us, Galatians 3 says. He died in our place on the cross so that he could give us his righteousness. He lived that perfect life of, of obedience and now we get the credit for it. That's amazing. And he gave us eternal life with God. His perfect life shows us the way that we were supposed to live. His sacrificial death shows us that we, we actually couldn't do it on our own. But his victorious resurrection shows us that now, through the life-giving power of his Holy Spirit, as we remain in the vine, the tree by the river, and drink the living water that he supplies and do this in the power of the Spirit, we can now live as blessed ones in the blessed one. He's the anointed one from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 ends this way by saying that all who take refuge in him, this anointed one, are happy. They're blessed. They're blessed. To take refuge in Jesus is to delight in him, and to delight in him is to delight in his word. You know that we actually can't delight in somebody that we don't know? And we can't know this Jesus for who he is unless we open his word and read about him. The more we get to know Christ through his word, the more we will delight in him. And the more we delight in him, the more we'll take refuge in him. When we delight in Jesus and in the wisdom of his word, the firm foundation that we sang about this morning, the advice of the wicked won't seem so attractive to us, will it? 
we'll see it for what it is. It's foolishness. When Jesus is on our minds day and night, we'll be less prone to wander into things like fear and worry and doubt and temptation and sin. Instead, when we continually draw nourishment from our Lord's instruction, we will bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We will be prosperous in Christ. We will be prosperous in Christ. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that we're gonna be rich and healthy and famous. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean that everything will always go our way and that we'll never suffer in this life. Jesus lived perfectly and his life was full of suffering. Right? Here's what it does mean. It means that no matter what we go through, no matter what happens to us, no matter, no matter what our circumstances in life, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Why? Because nothing can separate us from that love. Not even death can separate us. It means that we'll never suffer under the wrath of God. That's the kind of suffering we don't want because that lasts forever. The suffering that we experience in this life is temporary at best. If you're in Christ, we need to know the difference. We need to trust the difference. We'll never suffer under the wrath of God because Jesus suffered God's wrath in our place. It means that we have truly nothing to fear, including death itself, because the one in whom we delight holds us in his hand and nothing can snatch us out of it, not even death itself. Why? Because death couldn't hold him either. The same cannot be said, though, for those who do not delight in Christ and seek refuge in him. Look at these last three verses. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like chaff that, blows, uh, that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. When we look at the world around us, it may seem like the wicked are prospering at whatever they do, Right? It's disheartening, isn't it? We just think about, about all, the, all the things that are going on in our world, in your life, at your job, in your home, at school, and it just feels like everybody's winning but you, right? But we need to remember the end, the end of the wicked. We need to remember their end. They're not like a tree planted beside the stream. The wicked are not like this, it says, what are they like? They're like chaff that blows away in the wind. I love to roast coffee. And after I roast, there's, there's chaff that comes off of the beans. And I take the container outside and I shake it. And the beans stay and the chaff goes away. All the good stuff is there. The wicked are like chaff blown away in the wind. Their time is short. We saw this in the book of Revelation, didn't we? Evil will not have the ultimate victory. A day is coming when all of God's enemies will perish in their rebellion against them, like Psalm chapter two says, against him, excuse me. They won't be able to stand under his righteous judgment. They won't be counted among the assembly of the righteous ones who have taken refuge in Jesus. See, all that take refuge in Christ are righteous in Christ. That's what it means for us to be righteous, not of our own works, not of anything that comes out of us, but for what comes into us. That is Christ himself. 
as we love and delight in him and seek his refuge. And the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. His word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. He leads us not into temptation, but he delivers us from the evil one. Why? Because we're united to the righteous one. And the righteous one has promised to be with us to the end of this age and on into eternity. The way of the wicked leads to ruin because they've rejected the only way that leads to life. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. He's the gate. He's the road. He's the way. Have you found him? Have you found the gate? Do you know this way that leads to life? There's no other way. There's no other gate. Have you sought refuge in him? If not, Psalm 1 makes it clear that you're living like chaff in the wind. Your time is short. You won't be able to stand up under the righteous judgment of God that's coming. But here's the thing. This is what the truth of God's word does. It stirs our hearts, convicts our hearts, points us to the one who, uh, who has come for our hearts. You don't have to keep running down the wrong path. You don't have to keep living like chaff in the wind. You don't have to stay on the path that leads to ruin. Take refuge in Christ. Delight yourself in him, this anointed one, this King Jesus who sits on the throne forever. Surrender your life to his loving care and wise control. Confess your sinful ways and humbly receive his instruction. Drink deeply from the one who is the living water and delight yourself in him and the forgiveness that he's provided for you. Be reconciled to God and bear real lasting fruit in Christ. Turn from your sin and trust in him and you will be counted in the assembly of the righteous like the rest of us who have done the same. It's not about us. It's about this king who's on the throne forever. See, there's only two ways to live. The way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. That's it. There's no middle ground. Which way are you living? The psalm is not just giving us instructions on how to live. If we walk away with that, we're gonna miss the whole point. This psalm is stirring our hearts to show us the one who lived the perfect way, the blessed one. It's teaching us to delight in the one who truly lived the blessed life so that we then can truly be blessed in him. Only those who delight in the blessed one are truly the blessed ones. Only those who delight in Christ are truly happy. May we find no greater joy then than knowing this Savior King who sits on the throne forever and may we walk with him. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Pray, God, that it would stir our hearts to deeper love 
for the one who loved us and continues to love us and will love us forever. Pray that you would draw those who don't know Christ to know him today and be blessed by the blessed one. And that you would remind us as those who've been blessed in Christ of every spiritual blessing that we've been given in the heavens in him. May we look to Jesus again and again, delighting in him as we delight in your word and live in this new way that only Christ has enabled us to live. All for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.